All right, what's up, Salt Company? My name is Drake. I am the one that leads Salt Company with the uh, incredible staff that we have here. And I just want to say, uh, as, as Colin said it earlier as well, um, I want to say a welcome, a special welcome to anyone that this is your first time at Salt Company. Because I know coming into a room like this, maybe your friend drug you along to be a part of Salt Company tonight. I know being in a room like this, you're seeing hands being raised, you're, you're trying to sing along to these words that you don't know. I, I want you to know, literally wherever you're coming in from, like you're welcome to come as you are. Because here's the thing that I want to tell you, if you come around long enough, you'll find out we're just broken people that need an incredible Savior. And that is what I hope that you guys hear tonight. More than anything that you would see that Jesus has made a way for you to actually have a relationship with Christ. And so the way that we're going to do that is we're going to continue on. We're in our second week of a series called Unexpected Hope. And so we're looking at the life of Joseph. And the reason why we're kind of like zeroing in on one person's life in the Bible is because we, we get to see the entirety of Joseph's life. Like beginning to end, we get to see the trials, we get to see the joys, we get to see the difficulties, and we get to see God's working throughout all of his story. And so we actually want to look closer at the life of Joseph and say, man, what does it have for me? Like, what can we learn? What can we glean from this? And as we look at the life of Joseph, we're going to see that God has an unexpected plan for Joseph, something that Joseph would have never expected, but it's something so far greater than he could have ever imagined. And I want to say the same is true for us, that God's plan for how he wants to use us in this life is so much, just not expected by our own selves, but it's so much greater than we could ever imagine. And so we're continuing on from our story from last week. Austin talked about how Joseph is one of 12 brothers, okay? He's in this family, this, the people of God, and he's actually the young brother that then gets sold by his older brothers into slavery, okay? And so what we're picking up on tonight is actually he gets sold into slavery, and he is in this text, kind of coming up against some pretty significant temptation. And so the question, the big question that I want us to kind of like park under and think about tonight is how do you fight temptation in your life? Because temptation isn't just something we experience like in good or bad seasons of walking with Christ. Temptation is like this present reality that we experience when we walk with Jesus. And so I, I think some of you have probably even seen, like when you start following Jesus, it's, it's exciting, like you're, you're pumped to start following him, but then you realize, man, I thought this was going to be easy. It's actually getting a little more difficult than I thought. Like before, where you just ran after the desires that you wanted, you're realizing, no, Jesus is actually rewiring those to give you new loves, new motivations, but you still feel tempted to come back to your old life. And so the question is, how do you fight temptation in your life? So let's pick back up in uh, Genesis chapter 39. Uh, and so flip, open in your Bible, on your phone, whatever it might be, open up. Genesis is the first book of your Bible. The big numbers are going to be your chapters. Small numbers are going to be your verses. We're starting in Genesis 39, verse 1. It says, Now Joseph 
had been brought down to Egypt in Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, had bought him from the Ishmaelites, who had brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph and became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. Okay, so the first point that we're going to look at tonight is Joseph's understanding of sin. So we're going to dive a little bit more into that, but let's remember, let's look back a little bit to the story last week. Okay, so Joseph is the younger brother of the 12, right? And he is the one that's kind of staying at home. He's the parents' favorite. The other ones are out working hard in the fields. And Joseph has this dream. And in this dream, he realizes, hey, God is, I think, telling me that all of my brothers are going to bow down to me. I should probably go tell them about that. So he runs out to the field. He finds all of his brothers who hate him. And he says, hey, guys, gather around. I had a dream. You want to hear about it? You guys are going to bow down to me. He has another one. And he thinks it's a brilliant idea to tell him about the second dream that he had. And so what do they do? They throw him in a pit. And they're probably thinking, look who's bowing down to who right now. Like, as they look down on their brother in this pit, and then they sell him into slavery and fake his death so that the dad wouldn't know that he was sold into slavery. And so he goes through the most traumatic season in his life, but yet we still see the words that the Lord was with him. And so he gets sold to these Ishmaelites, traders, and then these traders take him to Egypt. So if you're ever wondering, like, how did the people of God become slaves in Egypt? Like, this is the beginning of that story. And so Potiphar is the one that buys Joseph. And Potiphar is an extremely influential man in the land of Egypt. Like, he is a right-hand man to Pharaoh. He is the head of all security. He says the captain of the guard. He is the head of all security in the land of Egypt. So he's covering the prisons. He's making sure that Pharaoh's orders are being upheld in the whole city, and this is the man that buys Joseph. And again, we see that the Lord was with Joseph, and Joseph remembers this throughout his days. Even in the difficulty, he knows that the Lord is with him. So day after day, he shows up to Potiphar's house, and he's working extremely hard, so much so that Potiphar notices this, and he actually is giving him more leadership, giving him more stewardship of responsibility, more authority in the house, to where the text goes on to say that he, has a, he had as much authority as Potiphar himself. So he rose in the ranks to where Potiphar put everything in his charge. And you have to imagine that Joseph is probably wondering, like, is this what my dreams were talking about? Like, is this kind of the leadership role that it was saying that my brothers would bow down to me? And in this really good season of success, in honor, Joseph is going to experience some pretty significant temptations. And I want you to reflect on your own life, because doesn't that seem to be true for you as well? That the temptation that comes up in your life that catches you the most off guard is actually in the good seasons. Like in the stretches of days where you've actually been doing really well in your battle with purity. You stop counting the days because you're like, I have got this figured out. So you let your walls down. You stop following the boundaries that you once did. Temptation comes in and you fall. Or it's been a great season of getting really good grades. And what you begin to see 
is that you find your identity more and more by the next grade and the next grade. You start canceling out some of the things that are in your schedule that actually stir your affection for Jesus because everything is about the grades. I wouldn't know that struggle, but I know that that is a struggle, all right? Because you don't, it's, it's not hard to find your identity in, in grades when you're not that great with them. So performing in the classroom actually becomes what your identity is surrounded by. It's the good seasons that actually bring about more concern, that actually should cause us to tremble a little bit more. Because in those seasons, that's where we put our guards down. And so that's where Joseph is at in this incredible, successful season where he's getting heaped on him so much honor. But let's look at this moment of temptation that Joseph has. So let's read Genesis 39, 6 through 9. Now Joseph was handsome and form and appearance. Apparently that was necessary to add in there. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, lie with me. Pretty upfront. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the, in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. He's not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except you, because you are his wife. How then can I do this incredible wickedness and sin against God? Okay, so Joseph's found himself a little situation. It literally talks about Joseph is a handsome man, okay, in form and appearance. There's literally three or four guys in the whole Bible that they stop to make this note. Like, they're telling the entirety of Joseph's story in a couple chapters, and these are significant words that Moses thought, hey, I need to add these in, right? So he's an attractive dude. Potiphar's wife comes to Joseph in a very upfront way and just says, lie with me. And you have to imagine, what are all the things that are racing through Joseph's mind right now? Like, how could I do that to my master? Like, this dude bought me out of slavery. Like, I'm his servant. And he has done nothing but lavish me in this house. Nothing but given me more leadership and responsibility and trust. But he's also wrestling with, okay, this girl's pretty significant in the land of Egypt. Probably not a good idea to get on her bad side. And so all these things are colliding in his mind. But he, ultimately what he realizes is that sin brings about brokenness in relationships. Like, he just knows this is going to cause a lot of hurt, a lot of brokenness. How could I do that to my master? But what does he say next? And I want you to slow down and, and actually look at this because the wording of it is very interesting. When you look at the verses before it, he says, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And what we're going to see in this sentence is actually two things that show that Joseph had a correct understanding of what sin was. So first, he said a great wickedness. Okay, Joseph isn't trying to like sugarcoat that sin at all. He's not trying to say, okay, this is like a fun act that's kind of bad, that, you know, if we did this, then tomorrow we could forget about it. Like, he's not trying to diminish this sin in his life. No, he's saying like, this is a great wickedness. Do you notice who he says that he would sin against in this moment? Because every sentence leading up to this statement would make it seem that he would say, how could I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? But that's not what he says. He says, how 
kind of do this great wickedness and sin against God. What Joseph knew is that sin, yeah, it, it affects other people. There's brokenness in relationships with other people, but ultimately, sin is an act against our holy God. That when we sin, it actually breaks the heart of God. We're going against the design of God, the good design that he laid out from before the beginning of time. We are going against that. So there is no such thing as this small sin that doesn't have any weight to it. Like every single sin offends the holy God that we serve. Joseph knew the depths of sin and didn't try to make it anything less than that. But here's our problem. We have become experts at diminishing our sin in our lives. Like we'll say things like, it's just once. Like I've had a pretty good stretch, like it's just once, and no one will even know about it. Like we're just having a good time, like we're celebrating someone, no one even got hurt by the situation. Why is it such a big deal? You might think sometimes, like I can cheat on a test. No one likes this professor anyway. Everyone thinks this professor should have actually done different things to prepare us better. It's not actually on me. It's on them. We, we do everything we can to diminish our sin because we don't want to know how broken we really are. Okay, so I have the great joy of being able to drive around in a lot of people's dream car. It's a 2003 Pontiac Grand Prix. Wait for it. Sports edition. All right? So cruising around this thing, right? Cruising around in the beautiful silver bullet, and as I'm driving around in this thing, a light pops up on the dashboard, right? Check engine. And someone, after a while, says, hey, Drake, do you know your check engine light's on? I'm like, yeah, it's not a big deal. It's just a light. Like, all it is is it's just a light on my dashboard. That doesn't bother me too much. I can keep going. Here's the issue. The problem is so much worse than just a light. But everything in me wants to diminish it to just that because I don't want to know the full extent of the problem. Here's what we do all the time. We take the sin in our life that is great wickedness against the holy God and we diminish it so that it doesn't seem as bad as it really is. We don't want to know how broken we actually are. And the reason why we don't want to know how broken we actually are is because we don't want to be people that actually need God's grace. Everything in us wants to be strong enough on our own. Like God's grace is a sweet message that we talk about at Salt Company every week. I want people in my connection group to know it. I want my friends that I bring to know it. I don't want to be someone that actually needs his grace myself, though. And so the question I want to ask is, what sin in your life have you been diminishing to make it seem like it's not really a big deal? To make you more okay that you can stomach it, and actually you're okay with doing it more and more and more. You've become more and more callous to it because it's just this little thing. A simple application from this point, call sin what it is, sin. And sin is not simply breaking the rules. It is betraying the heart of God and not seeing him for who he is. I just want you to imagine, like, if that is how you viewed sin, how would you fight it differently? 
When you see sin happening in your friend's life, like how would you join together with them differently to fight with them? Let's continue on to see Joseph's response to this temptation that he's in. So we're going to go to point two, the response to temptation. Let's look back at 39 verses 11 through 12. And as she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. But one day when he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the house was there in the house, she caught him by his garment saying, lie with me. Okay, so it says that Potiphar's wife was coming to him day after day after day after day saying the same words, lie with me, lie with me. Like she wouldn't give this dude a break. Like she kept coming back to him and saying these things. And every single time, notice what Joseph says that he did. Like he didn't listen to her. He didn't lie with her. And he didn't even, he wasn't even around her. Like he, he fought with everything in him to not even be in the same room alone with her. What do we see happening in Joseph's life right now when he faces temptation? We see that Joseph is fighting off temptation by trying to fight it at the first step. What do I mean at the first step? I mean that he wasn't waiting until it got to the worst case scenario until he began fighting it. Like he, he would try to fight it much earlier on in his life when it wasn't, when it was just this simple thought in his mind. That is when he began fighting it. Not waiting until a moment where he could no longer fight it. But that's not what we often see ourselves doing most of the time. When thought comes into our mind, we don't flee from it immediately. We actually entertain it. We let it linger. We, t we joke about it with our friends. We just say, hey, I'm just scrolling on my phone. Like, it's not that big of a deal. It's not influencing anyone else Yet, and so we let it settle because the first lie that we are tempted to believe is that we are strong enough. That's the first lie that Satan is going to convince us of is that I am above this sin in my life. And so, a question I want you to process as well is like, where do you need to invite people into your struggle earlier on in the process? Like, maybe it's when you get a text being invited to a party, and you need to text someone else and say, hey, I got this invite. Would you keep me accountable? Like, I know this is a struggle. Maybe it's when you have a thought, like you're walking back to your apartment. You're tired. You know no one else is there. And you know that is a place where you struggle with lust. Maybe that's when you tell your friend, hey, would you pray with me? Would you check in on me to see how I'm doing? Would we begin fighting sin so much earlier on so it has no ability, no teeth to grow in our days? So the story continues. It says, but one day, so just another normal day, that's similar to everyone else's, every other day that Joseph goes into Potiphar's house. So he goes into Potiphar's house to just work another normal day. And what he doesn't know is that all of the men of the house are gone probably because Potiphar's wife actually demanded that none of them would be there. She had that kind of authority, that kind of power. So she says to all the men not to be there, Joseph has no idea. He goes in on another normal day. And here's what happens. 
where she has made herself extremely clear in the past, she takes it one step further. She literally grabs his clothing and says, lie with me. Yet again, the same words. And again, can you imagine what he is thinking in this moment? No one else is here. No one will probably find out. Again, it'd probably be pretty good to be on her good side. Like, she has a lot of status in this city that would bode well for me. Like, my family is actually so far away from me. They would never know. And they actually sold me into slavery, so who even cares? No one who believes in the same God as me is anywhere within eyesight. None of those people would have a different perspective on me at all. And this distance from everyone that he knows and loves that follows the same God could create such an easier path for him to fall in. And I think some of you would also see that in your life at times as well. You think about times that you were isolated back at home around your high school friends that don't know Jesus. Maybe you're on vacation and you wrestled with similar thoughts. Like no one would know if I got drunk with my friends from back home. I could just download Tinder for the weekend and no one else would find out. It's that easy. I'm so far away from my connection group, like everyone at Salt Company, no one would know anything that I'm doing. Their perspective of me wouldn't change at all. I could keep my front here at Salt Company, but I can also explore the things I want. When you are distanced from your community, it seems easier and easier to rationalize each step. One small step of rationalization easily leads to another and to another and to another, and then you find yourself doing something you said you would never do again. Let's look at how Joseph responded. He said, but he, in 39 verse 12, but he left his garment in her hand and fled and got out of the house. Dude hauled so fast out of the house that his clothing stayed in her hand. He sprints out of the house in his underwear. Where is he going? He has no idea. He just knows, I can't be here. That's the one thing that he knows. Again, what we see in this text it's not that Joseph was strong enough. I think we can lift him up on a pedestal and make him look like this hero. It's not that he is strong enough. He just had a vivid awareness of how far from being strong enough he really was. That's why he bolts. He's like, I can't be around here. So he leaves. He didn't ask any questions like, what would people think of me? How is she going to respond? Would people actually find out? What he knows is that if I stayed, this would lead to me breaking the heart of God. This would lead to actually me destroying my soul. So my wife and I, we've got some friends that went on a little trip this summer, and they came back with the most wild story I've ever heard. Okay, So they're at Glacier doing a hike, as you do at those places, and they're on mile 13 of this hike. Okay, They're feeling tired. They're trying to get to the end of this hike, and all of a sudden, the husband is just walking. He stops, looks up, and literally shorter distance from me to the end of these seats, grizzly bear, okay? Mama bear with two cubs right beside her, and before he can even think, she starts just pouncing and charging after them. 
So he's freaking out. He's trying to grab his bear spray. He put it in a very inconvenient spot, and he actually knocks him and his wife over on the ground. Okay, this bear gets within 10 feet, one more pounce, and this bear would have been on top of them, mauling them. Bear stops, turns around, and walks away. You know what they probably weren't thinking? Should we go and get a closer look at the cubs? Like, oh, dang, I didn't have my phone out. Like, should we go get a picture with them? Like, what's the line that I can't cross until I'm in danger with this bear? Like, no, they didn't ask any questions. They just, like, left. I mean, you had to leave quietly because you don't want to startle the bear, but they left because they knew, okay, if I hang around this bear, bad news for me. Here's what we see from Scripture. When we are following Christ, we should have the same motivation when we face sin in our life. Because, okay, where it might affect us physically, what we also know is that it will destroy our soul. That sin against God will break the heart of God and will destroy the very soul that we long to serve him with. And some of you, as you look at the story of Joseph, I think you can look back and see moments where you're like, man, I remember that moment where I just conquered that temptation. Like people were around me asking me to have a drink, and I just said, no, I, not tonight. Or maybe you got a text from someone and you just avoided that altogether. Like you look back and you see moments, but I think more of us in this room, that's, that's not what's flooding to mind. If you're being honest, actually the thing that's flooding to mind more is when you actually gave in to that temptation. The times that you chose to give in to that momentary pleasure, the times that you didn't choose to fight it, the times that you honestly didn't care at all to fight it. And so you look at the life of Joseph and you cheer him on like, Joseph, that's amazing. But then when you look back at yourself, you wrestle with, man, could that ever be me? The temptation seems too strong. The battle feels like it's been going on for too long. You feel too weak, even though you're trying to do everything you can to make it look like you have it all together on the outside. And as you hear that initial question of how do I fight temptation in my life, you actually just feel a little bit discouraged. You feel drained. Like, I, I've been trying. I've been fighting. I've been doing everything I can. I've been falling time after time after time. Let's continue on and see the results of Joseph's obedience. 39 verses 13 through 15. And as soon as she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled out of the house, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he has brought among us a Hebrew to laugh at us. He came into me to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice, and as soon as he heard that I lifted up my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled and got out of the house. Okay, so Potiphar's wife obviously constructs a false story, and this is the same story that she shares with Potiphar when he comes home. Basically, Joseph came in, he tried to lie with me, I yelled, he got a little bit nervous, so he bolted. And this, in verse 20, is Potiphar's response. And so, and Joseph, Joseph's master, took him and put him into the prison, the place 
where the king's prisoners were confined, and he was there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. So what was the result of Joseph's radical obedience? Prison. What was the result of his, him being absolutely innocent? People made up a story that made him look guilty. So though he was innocent, he was treated as the guilty one in the scene. And everything in us, like, hates this, right? Like, everything in us, like, knows that that is not just. Everything in us wants to celebrate the courage that Joseph had in this moment, and yet he's going to prison. So where we even want to connect with Joseph, what we truly know is that it is hard for us to connect with him in this moment. Because we know. Like, if we truly are honest with ourselves, we're not the innocent one. Like, there's a lot of brokenness and selfishness within our own. We, we remember back to those times that we did give in to sin. We remember the times that we did choose sin in our lives. And so the story of fleeing sin and being wrongly accused isn't actually meant to draw our eyes on ourselves, but to someone else, and that is Jesus. Jesus, who came as the only perfect man to ever exist and lived out a perfect life. He was tempted in every way, but did not give in to sin. He was tempted in the desert, did not give in. He was tempted in the Garden of Gethsemane. That he, he was like, Father, will you take this cup of wrath from me? But he was obedient. He was tempted that, Jesus, if you're the Son of God, you could hop off that cross at any moment. But he chose to still hang there. Jesus, in every way, was the one who was innocent. The one who was perfectly obedient to his father. The one who pursued this world in a way to love and to bring about the kingdom of God. And what was the result for him is for him to be hung on a cross on your, for your behalf. And he did so so that the power of sin over your life would be completely destroyed. Because Jesus was killed and he was buried, but then three days later he rose from the grave and he's offering that new life to you as well. And I want to say to someone who hasn't ever put their faith in Christ, there is nothing more you need to do. You don't need to pretty up your life. You don't need to stop saying, like, let's swear where we get weird with what things we need to change about ourselves to be good enough for God. You don't need to have a better attendance here at Salt Company. What the cross shows is that the problem was so bad that he had to hang up in front of all the world. There's literally nothing you can do, but Jesus' blood was shed on your behalf to invite you in. The unexpected hope that we see in this story is that where you might feel like you are never going to have what Joseph had, you actually have it far better. What do I mean by that? What we see in this story is that it's very clear that the Lord was with Joseph. You'll see that phrasing throughout his life, that the Lord was with him. But here's the promise for you that are a Christian. What we see in the scripture is that Jesus is not just with you, but he is within you. Which is so much more significant than Joseph ever had. If you are a part of Christ's own body. This is a quote from Dane Orland. I jumped in a little fast, all right? Dane Orland, a book called Gentle and Lowly. This is what he says. 
If you're a part of Christ's own body, your sin evokes his deepest heart, his compassion and pity. He takes part with you because of your sin. He takes part with you. That is, he is on your side. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. He hates sin, but he loves you. I think that was such a revealing quote for me. Because I think a lot of times in my walk with Jesus, I believed it was the latter. That it is God going against me in my sin. And I think a lot of times it led me to feel defeated, like I'm not good enough. I've tried everything I can. I can't be good enough for Jesus. But what we see for those of you who have put your faith in Christ, that Christ is in you, that it's not God against you and your sin. It's you and Christ against your sin. And he's saying, I'm with you. I will help you. I want to take you on this adventure to a place called glory, and I am here to wipe out every temptation that comes in your way. That you're not operating off of your own strength. You're operating off the strength of Christ. Not the purity of your own heart, but the purity of Christ in your life because Christ is with you. Hear me when I say this, that there are a lot of things that you will experience in this broken world. Hurt, shame, guilt, but one thing that will never again be true of your life is that you are never going to be alone. Here's what I want for you all. I want all of us to grow in having an above average awareness at how bad we are at fighting temptation on our own. That you would shrink the gap more and more from when you feel tempted to where you say, God, help me. I need you. To where you would shrink the gap more and more from when you try to battle the thoughts on your own to where you're texting someone saying, hey, would you pray with me? Would you check in on me? Because the way you begin fighting temptation in your life is that you completely deny that first lie that you are strong enough to do it on your own. Again, you can't do it on your own. Christ on the cross shows like your best efforts was demanding of him to go hang on a cross. He's done everything on your behalf. He invites you in. You aren't strong enough on your own, but Christ in you is. So where do you need to recognize that you are weak in your life and that you actually need to rely on the strength of Christ instead of your own? Uh, last week, uh, a couple of us pastors at Salt City, we were at this smaller conference, and a guy by the name of David Loveless actually shared this tool with us that I thought was very helpful. So I'm going to throw it up on the screen. And essentially what this is, he calls it the transformational blueprint. That sounds really fancy. I just think it's like the Christian life, okay? And so here's what we do when we start with the I am of this. That's how you view yourself, that's your identity and who you are as a human being. And that's how you view yourself as a human being is actually determining everything you do. And so from that statement, we quickly go to I can. What I mean by this is this is where you're wrestling with I am strong enough. I can actually do this on my own. I don't need to confess sin to other people because I can actually clean up my act. I can do this, but 
oftentimes what happens is that we realize we don't stay there for long. And that idea of I can do this actually gets deconstructed to where we say I can't. Just very clearly, we realize our weakness, we realize our flaws, and we come before someone and we're like, man, I can't do this on my own. And it's only then, when we say I can't, that we then look to Jesus and his perfection, and we see where he is perfect, where we are weak. We see how he accomplished everything that we desire to but can't. But then the beautiful thing, when we see that he can in our life, is that transitions to we can. Because if Jesus can, that means that you can as well because Christ is in you. And so what this does is it actually spurs you on that you are now operating out of the new identity that you have in Christ, that Christ is in you, and you can actually defeat this temptation in your life. So I want to ask, what one of those steps do you find yourself being stuck in right now? And what do you need to do to move one step further? And here's the reality of this. Like, this isn't just one loop around, all right, guys? Like, this is a cycle that we're going to continually go through throughout the rest of our Christian walk, that we're going to strive time and time again to accomplish things on our own strength, realize we can't, look to Jesus, find that we get to be empowered through him to live out the new life that we have. So where do you find yourself right now? And I just want to close out this time by asking you, what is one radical step of obedience that you feel like you need to take today? Because we, we realize like we've been redeemed. We've been made holy and blameless before God. Like that is who we are now. Nothing you can do, there's nothing you can do to change that. Like that is who you are. But we don't fully believe that. Actually, throughout the rest of our Christian walk, we're going to be coming to a greater and greater terms with that reality. Like, we're going to be understanding that more and more. And so what is one radical step that you need to take now to pursue after that end? Like, maybe for some of you, you just need to determine, like, I'm not going to drink at all the rest of this semester. Maybe for some of you, you're like, I need to break off this relationship because it's actually pulling me further away from Christ. Maybe for some of you, it's like, hey, I need to actually confess something to my connection group for the first time. Something that I've never shared with anyone else. Something I've been tucking away in shame and guilt. And I actually just need to bring that to the light. Because that's me admitting that I can't do it. And that's when you begin to see that Jesus can on your behalf. Maybe for some of you, it's applying for overseas. Like you've been wrestling with that. And you've been kind of tucking away, like, no, I don't want to think about that. But maybe for some of you, that's an obedient step to Jesus that you need to take. And guys, all of this is because we see in John 15 that us choosing an obedient life is actually, that is the life where we get to abide in Jesus more and more. And our heart behind this conversation is that you would grow more and more in love with Jesus and less and less in love with this world. So let's strive to run from temptation and to realize that in the face of temptation, Christ is in us and he's working through us to live in the life that he's called us for. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. God, you sending your son to the cross is the most 
visual display of how broken this world was. God, this world would go to the extent of killing your son to draw your blood, but that very blood that was drawn was also your mercy that cleanses us from our sin. God, I pray for the person that's trying to put up a front right now that they're strong enough. They don't need to confess sin, that they can do this on their own. I pray that you would just invite them into the freedom. Invite them into the peace of living in the light, of confessing that and realizing, Jesus, we need you in our life. Jesus, that you are right beside us as we strive to look more like you. And so help us as a family to realize that you are with us. Help us to realize that we are not alone in this journey become more like you because you are within us and you are causing us to look more and more like you. So would we rely on you? Would we look to you? Would we cling to you? Would we stop trying to be strong enough on our own? Would we just come to terms that I am broken? Jesus, this is all by your strength. This is all by your spirit. So would you come and be with us and lift our eyes to worship you tonight? Would we leave this place in awe of who you are by your spirit? It's in your name we pray.